Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. If you're not eating any direct sources of EPA, DHA, and you want to optimize your conversion, you want to make sure you're getting enough of these long-chain omega-3s that you would typically find in fish from plant sources, having some ground flax seeds, even like two tablespoons a day, is an excellent way. Really, what we want to do is we want to double the RDA. We want to be getting over three grams a day. And it's very easy to do with flax. Flax is one of the most dense and cheapest forms of omega-3s you can possibly get. So that's my go-to. Of course, chia seeds, ground chia seeds are great sources. We've got walnuts, excellent sources as well. A lot of the benefits we see from like say fish consumption or omega-3 consumption seems to be largely driven by the fact that it replaces meat. If you are somebody with high triglycerides or if you're somebody who's previously had cardiovascular disease or have other comorbidities, it absolutely does seem to be beneficial. That's Dr. Matthew Nagra and this is episode 113 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Hey friends, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. My name is Simon Hill and I'm your host. I hope you've been keeping well. For regular listeners, welcome back. It's always a pleasure to be able to share these conversations with you. For new listeners, thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed today's exchange and we can keep the dialogue going into the future. By way of background, I am a nutritionist, a physiotherapist, and science enthusiast with a passion for understanding how science can inform our food choices. Each week, I sit down with guests, each of whom have a unique background and set of expertise, with the aim of having a thought-provoking conversation that you and I can walk away from feeling inspired by to better our health the planet's health, and the lives of the animals that we share this experience with. Short introduction today as it's quite a long episode and I know your time is precious. Today's guest is the incredibly smart Dr. Matthew Nagra, a naturopathic doctor from Vancouver, Canada. Shout out to my Vancouver friends. Still need to get over there someday soon and say hi. In my opinion, Matt is certainly one of the best health professionals to follow on social media for really high quality breakdowns of nutrition science. As you will find out, he dedicates his time to helping patients at his Vancouver clinic upgrade their health and has a really good appreciation for both Western medicine as well as the healing power of plants and enormous benefits that can be derived by making lifestyle changes. Matt and I talk pretty much daily about nutrition science, dissecting new papers together and always trying to make sure that the information we are providing is evidence-based and in the best interest of those that we are reaching. So naturally, this episode covers a bit of everything. From the most recent study out of the United Kingdom, on different dietary patterns and bone fracture risk, to how Matt approaches dietary changes in his clinic with patients, to common questions that he gets around things like protein, soy, and lectins, 
to a brand new study out on the iodine status of people eating plant-rich diets and a lot more, some of which you may have heard guests or myself talk about before that will be good for refreshing your memory and no doubt some new things too. As always, my hope is that you'll find at least a few key takeaways that you can leave the episode with and use to make positive changes in your life. Okay, let's do this. See you on the other side. Matthew Nagra, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's uh, awesome to to finally be able to do to do this. Uh, I know you and I have pretty much daily dialogue now on <laughs> on on news headlines and and studies. So yeah, it's it's an honor to to finally have you on the show, and I'm really looking forward to sharing the incredible wealth of knowledge that you have with the plant proof community. Thanks. And it's, it's an honor to be on. I've been following the podcast for uh, at least a couple of years now. So I've been, been listening pretty regularly. What I love about what you're doing is you're this really incredible blend of someone that is extremely evidence-based and honest with the science across the literature, but you're also out there in the real world dealing with and and treating patients and on top of that you are someone who follows a vegan diet for ethics but is able to separate that ethical stance from the analysis of of science so today i guess the the aim of this conversation is i'm really interested in in sort of how you operate clinically and learning a little bit more about naturopathy and, and what a uh, naturopathic doctor is. I think that's really interesting in and of itself. I do want to, to, to dive into that and learn more about you, but given this week and the context of this week, and it's been pretty wild, I thought that perhaps we, we could start with the Epic Oxford study that came out and uh, on fractures and and sort of was picked up by mainstream media and the likes of of Joe Rogan, helping to to create a little bit more confusion in the world of of nutrition. What can you sort of tell the listeners about this study in terms of the type of study it was, who was involved, and and what can we make of the findings? Yeah, that's that's good. I know the past few days we have been talking literally all day, every day about it, <laughs> sending stuff back and forth. And I, I want to first tell everyone that this wasn't some biased agenda study from like the meat industry or something. We, we've heard that a lot. I've seen it a lot online. You know, a lot of vegans will just bash it for that reason. And actually, two of the authors were vegan, right? They, they actually were vegan. So if anything, they'd have a bias towards that. And so there are some things that we need to take from this study. We do need to, to understand what our nutri- nutrient needs are, how we can go about making sure that we get all of our nutrition and to make sure that we don't you know, suffer from, from adverse consequences like extra fractures and that. But based on what I've seen from the study and based on what we've spoken about, it is not something inherent to the idea of a vegan or plant-based diet. Um, there are reasons that these people had um, higher fracture risk, and we can talk about all of those, of course. Okay, yeah, I think that would be that would be valuable. So, top line, you're saying not something to sort of get crazy worried about and be thinking about. Oh, I need to abandon the vegan diet. But why don't we drill down into some of those things? So, who who were these people? What was it about their 
lifestyle that you think sort of lent to this higher risk of, of fracture? Yeah, so this population, they're in the UK. So these are UK vegans and vegetarians who are enrolled in the 90s, actually. So these are people who are doing it before it was cool, so to speak, right? These are people who are doing it for a long time. Before we had the information that we do now about supplementation with certain things like vitamin B12, possibly vitamin D and other nutrients, as well as they were not eating a lot of fiber. These were vegans and vegetarians who were eating 25, 26 grams of fiber a day. So we know that they weren't eating whole foods sorts of diets. Now, when we look at calcium intake, because that's the big one, right? Calcium is what everyone needs for, or everyone thinks they need, and rightfully so, for bone health. When we look at calcium intake, the vegans were consuming 591 milligrams on average per day. Now, the recommendations in the UK are to hit at least 700 milligrams, and then the meat-eating group was was consuming in the ballpark of 1,000 milligrams a day. So they were eating far less on the vegan side. That isn't necessarily a problem because they were doing adjustments for calcium intake. So they were comparing people consuming under 525 milligrams to other people consuming under 525 milligrams. And then they moved up in segments from there to to adjust for this variable so that they only compare people within that same sort of intake range. The problem is, as I just mentioned, that the meat-eating group was consuming on average about 1,000 milligrams. So they're going to have very few people down in that sub-525 milligram range. And those that do reach that range are probably on the upper end of it. They're probably consuming in the ballpark of 475, 500, 525 milligrams. With the vegan group, if they're averaging 590, that means a lot of them are probably down around the I don't know, 250 range or even south of that in some cases, at least far more of them than they would be in the other case. Which would sort of make sense given the the prior study that came out of this group, which showed that when vegans were consuming 525 milligrams of calcium per day or more, they weren't at any higher risk of fracture compared to meat eaters. Yeah, exactly. Because in the study, they did adjust for calcium. And when they did that, they mitigated the risk to a certain extent. But that still has the issue of all those people in the vegan group who are probably way down in their calcium intake, right? And it wouldn't account for that. That's why I would have really have loved to have seen data on you know, what is it with the people, you know, is there any, any increase in risk above 525 uh, versus those below? So from a, a practical point of view, because I mean, you mentioned there, this is a, a data pool of, well, this is people that were living in the 90s. I mean, still living today, many of them, but the data, they started collecting it in the 90s. So people were not necessarily doing the whole whole food plant-based diet to the same extent or same way it's done today. And we're talking here about insufficient calcium intake. And that's likely from uh, a removal of, say, dairy from the diet, but not having the calcium-fortified plant-based options. Is, is that w- what you think would be contributing to that? I think so, because it is so easy to hit your calcium needs now. With fortified plant milks, you have a couple cups of that, and you're already at almost their daily intake. You have half a block of, of calcium-set tofu, and you're already over their entire daily intake. Um, so, I mean, I personally double their intake probably on a daily basis, and that largely comes in the form of those foods. Okay, so 
to to sort of just close off on calcium, what would what would your recommendation be for someone who is following a whole food plant based diet if they were wanting to say track a day of food and and put it into chronometer or something and just get a gauge for how much calcium they're getting? What's that target that you want to be you know reaching on a consistent basis? Yeah, that's a good question because like you said, that 2007 study we have from the same cohort found that above 525 milligrams was sufficient. I wouldn't rely on that necessarily. I would aim higher. It's better to aim higher and fall short than to aim for 525 and fall short. So I like to aim for about 700 milligrams, which is uh, which is the UK recommendation. And I think that's very easy for someone to hit if they're consuming fortified foods. Okay. And aside from from calcium, what other sort of nutrients would you say are key nutrients in terms of our bone health? And, and did this study look at anything else? Well, they did look at protein intake. And again, when they adjusted for protein intake, they did mitigate the fracture risk a little bit. But the big one that they left out altogether is vitamin D. There was no mention of it. They didn't track intakes. They didn't adjust for it. And I think that's a huge oversight because we know vitamin D is important for bone health and deficiency in vitamin D can increase risk of a fracture or low bone, bone mineral density. And I guess being from the UK at that sort of northern latitude, we know it can be harder to maintain you know, healthy, optimal vitamin D status, particularly towards the end of winter. Yeah. I know. I noted yesterday. I was reading up on on vitamin D recommendations around the world, and you and I were throwing a lot of things back and forth. <laughs> and to be honest, there's not one recommendation across the world. It is it is different depending on the position statement from your country or the guidelines in your country, which is to a large extent dependent on the latitude and how much sun people are uh, are getting on average. But what I noted was. The typical recommendation seemed to suggest that towards the end of summer, you want to have sort of not above the the, the high end of vitamin D status, but you want to have a, a quite a healthy status level. You don't want to just be on that fringe because it will drop off in winter. And I think you shared a study with me that kind of showed the vegans in the Epic Oxford cohort had healthy vitamin D levels all year round, except for in winter, it seemed to drop off below the sort of healthy level. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, this cohort, if we look at their vitamin D intake from previous analyses, the vegans were just abysmal. It was, um, you know, 35 to 40 international units a day, which is about a 10th or less of what's recommended as, as the RDA. Um, so they were having very little intake. Now they were still throughout summer and, and that it seems like they were getting enough because their levels were fine during those parts of the year, um, just through sun exposure. But uh, in the winter, they dipped um, below and actually significantly below the cutoff for deficiency. And so, and that's with a lot of them actually not supplementing because only half the people in this cohort supplemented at all. And my guess would be that not all of them uh, that were supplementing were supplementing with vitamin D. Yeah. And, you know, it's similar to calcium. This is something that is quite easy for all of us to address and be really proactive with. You you may already have a blood test that shows your vitamin D status, or you may, you may just know that you live at a, a very high latitude and you're not getting any sun exposure in 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 that circumstance uh, what should people consider with regards to to getting enough vitamin d yeah 
And depending on your um, guidelines in your country, some may suggest just fortified foods. I personally wouldn't rely on that. I would take at least a low dose of 400 international unit supplement a day, especially through the winter, if not the whole year. But I also believe it's safe to take in the realm of 1,000 to 2,000 a day. Uh, we don't see issues with high vitamin D status until you're up around like the 4,000 international unit range. So um, I definitely think we need to be proactive there with vitamin D intake and make sure you're taking it. And here in Canada, we actually don't test, like doctors don't test, period, uh, because it's a waste of insurance dollars. Everybody is assumed to be a deficient. Health Canada recommends everybody supplement through the winter, and Osteoporosis Canada recommends everybody supplement all year round. And that's just because better to be proactive. I can speak anecdotally uh, from my experience. I take uh, 1,000 IU a day. And I live in Sydney and there is a fair amount of sun. I do get ample sun. That vitamin D happens to be within a sort of multivitamin with B12 in it. And I continue to take it through summer and my blood test results have shown that it hasn't, it hasn't bumped me up, you know, sort of over the sort of healthy reference range. So you can always keep an eye on that if you're sort of unsure, are you getting too much sun exposure and do you need to back the vitamin D supplement or fortified foods off? Yeah, I agree. And I actually um, just got my test this morning. So we'll see what the results say uh, in the next uh, few weeks here. Very good. Okay. So that's that's calcium. Uh, protein, you mentioned. We've spoken about uh, vitamin D. So really, was there anything else in this study or anything else that we can take from this study in terms of uh, setting up our diet for sort of best results when it comes to bone health? Yeah, I think there was one huge uh, thing as well that we need to mention, and that's body mass index. So just weight distribution. The uh, vegan group swayed way lower on the body mass index just because they were lighter in general. And we typically find that uh, vegans or vegetarians are of lower weight. They tend to be of healthier weights, actually. But in this cohort, when they cut off um, BMI at 22.5, and the normal range actually dips far below that too, um, from 18.5 up to 25. But when they set a firm cutoff of 22.5, above a BMI of 22.5, there was no increased risk of fracture in vegans. So the risk for fracture was driven entirely by those under that cutoff of 225. Now, if we look further, they actually showed us the data on people with um, uh, BMIs below 20, which again, still technically in the low range, but you could be far below that. The vegans had about one quarter of them on that low end, whereas the meat eaters only had about 9% of them down there. What that tells me is that there's a small percentage of the meat eaters with a low normal BMI and probably very few of them that were actually underweight. In the actual vegan group, there's probably a lot of them, and we don't have the data for this because they didn't provide it, but there's probably a lot of them that are underweight and in some cases severely underweight that, again, the adjustments wouldn't have been um, uh, good enough to pick up similar to calcium. Uh, it would be the exact same issue that we spoke about with calcium where the distribution would just sway way lower, and we know that low uh, BMI like that increases risk of uh, fracture and lower bone mineral density. So what you're saying is... You don't want your your weight to to drop off and and become sort of super frail and be below that healthy BMI reference range of of sort of eighteen being that kind of lower end. Yeah, exactly. There was also something around postmenopausal women being more at risk. Yep. Um, yeah. When they separated out men, men did not have a, vegan men did not have a higher fracture risk than than the meat eating men. 
and the vegan premenopausal women did not have a higher fracture risk than the non-vegans. It was specifically driven by postmenopausal women. So um, these would have been the older women. Again, we're talking about possibly being underweight. They had lower um, hormone replacement therapy use and HRT use also increases bone mineral density. So there are some other factors. But again, I just feel like there's a few missing pieces of data here to draw really firm conclusions. And so what we can do at this point is just speculate on these various causes of of why um, why we saw these results and what we can do to make sure that we don't uh, end up with the same result. For sure. I, I think that bit there on the gender breakdown and the findings for, for postmenopausal women in particular seems to have been lost a little bit by certain media that have shared it and, and are, are sort of making this out to be for all vegans when it seems that that risk is very much driven by or, or the people that are more at risk are, are postmenopausal vegan women and those with a, a sort of low BMI. Yeah, exactly. And actually, just as a joke here, I, uh, uh, Joe Rogan, of course, posted about this as soon as the headline came out. And I just commented asking him if he's an uh, underweight postmenopausal woman, uh, just, just uh, for a little bit of a laugh there. Yeah, I get the feeling that Joe's in a, a mood this week to stir the pot because he also shared a an, an article written by a rancher, I think, of uh, course, a, a farmer on on planetary health and and how uh, eating meat is is the answer to to improving the the planet's health. So, I think he's just having a, a little laugh at his end there, but we'll see. He seems to change his his mood and and, and mind on a monthly basis. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, okay, so that's that study. Maybe to contextualize all of that what was the actual risk in terms of of fractures like how many extra fractures are we talking about here i think as a total um i can't remember what it is for each subgroup but as a total it was about 20 extra fractures per thousand uh so it was somewhere in that ballpark and uh that i don't believe was even the number of people that was the number of fractures uh so at the end of the day it wasn't absolutely massive you know we're talking about 980 not um, getting, uh, you know, having that added risk of fracture, just that 20 more. And I think the even zooming out further for, for context, we also need to appreciate what are the health advantages of adopting that diet. So when we look at any single study like this, if it shows an increased risk of, of 20 fractures per thousand people, I think that might have been over a 10 year period or something, that statistic. Yeah, that was, that was 10 years. Yeah. We have to we have to look at that and, and weigh that up against all of the other findings and and even this particular cohort. If if you were to look at some of the other health outcomes, it has very much lent in the favor of the vegans. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. the The biggest one is uh, the pooled cohorts, the UK vegans. So there's this great analysis of of these UK vegans compare and vegetarians compared against um, relatively health conscious meat eaters. And they found that before age 75, if you only look at the long-term vegans and vegetarians, those who stuck with it and didn't end up changing diets, they had, a, a, I believe, it was a 14% lower risk of dying before age 75. So I would take that with a um, small increased risk of fracture if I had to, just because of the, the overall health benefit. Yeah. And, and you and I shared the, that paper from a North American, a different cohort, yeah. the, the AHS2 cohort. And the vegetarians sort of all combined, I think it was pescatarians, vegetarians and vegans, all, mm -hmm. all the data pulled together, again, had significantly lower risk of, of total mortality. Yeah, 12% lower risk. Yeah. So 
in terms of, I guess, while we're on this topic of the sort of advantages of a uh, plant predominant or plant exclusive vegan diet, when you are asked by someone, you know, what are the main health advantages of eating this way and largely removing or completely excluding animal products and, and what science do you sort of point to to substantiate that? Yeah, there's a, a few different papers. We've already talked about a couple of them there. Um, I do also like to just highlight the blue zones, um, you know, the five areas around the world that have been documented to have great longevity and they all eat not necessarily plant exclusive, but plant predominant diets, um, whether that be the Okinawans, 96 or 97% plant-based or the Sardinians with, you know, 75% plant-based. Um, they all do incredibly well. And, and of course they have other healthy lifestyle behaviors as well. But going into the specific studies, I love AHS2, the Adventist Health Study 2. Uh, we just talked about 12% lower mortality risk in the vegetarians. Um, but then if we look at the health outcomes of the vegans specifically, they had a 62% lower risk of diabetes. And this is amongst, uh, in the total study, 96,000 people enrolled. They had a 62% lower risk of diabetes than the non-vegetarians, a 75% lower risk of hypertension before adjusting for body mass index. And we've already spoken about that, but because the vegans were the ones with a healthy body weight on average, after they adjusted for body weight, the sample size got so incredibly small that you actually couldn't, um, they, they didn't get a statistically significant reduction. There's just so few people uh, to compare when, when you're looking at you know, overweight vegans, for example. Um, and so uh, they had uh, you know, reductions with uh, blood pressure, uh, reductions with uh, uh, body mass index, and the vegan men specifically did incredibly well. They had a 55% lower risk of heart disease, a 42% lower risk of cardiovascular disease, and a 28% lower risk of all-cause mortality. And so these are definitely some points that I'd want to highlight there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty compelling stuff. But w w what I find quite funny, uh, ironic, I should say, is you've got media or Rogan sharing this epic Oxford study this week. But if you were to just explain what you just did, it would be written off as epidemiology. Yeah, 100%. That's, that's, that's just observational. Yeah, yeah. 100%. It's, it's hilarious. They cherry pick when they can use epidemiology, and then they'll write it off as Oh, but uh, we only use good epidemiology, even though this is one of the most well-adjusted, largest, long-term studies you can ever think of. And um, it, it's just, it's incredible. It's incredible double standard. I think that word you just used then, adjusted, is kind of thrown around and, and you and I understand what that means and some of the listeners may. And I've probably thrown it around on previous episodes and I'm sure there are some people who are thinking, what is that? Can you explain when you have an observational study or an epidemiology like what we're talking about, perhaps we start with what that is and then explain uh, what this, this idea of adjusting for sort of confounding uh, variables is. Yeah, so epidemiologic uh, research is when you're looking at population-based data. You're not doing an intervention where you enroll people in a study and you, you change their diet or you give them a, a medication and see what happens. You're just looking at people who are already eating certain ways and you're following them over time to see what their health outcomes would become. That would be what we call a prospective cohort study, which is sort of the best of the epidemiologic study. Now there are other forms. There's cross-sectional studies where you just look at one point in time, you know, what people are doing and what their health outcomes are. And we can get into all of those. I, I feel like that might be a, a bit much. But as far as adjustment and what that means is let's say we're looking at 
um, meat eating, we'll say red meat consumption and cardiovascular disease. Now, we might follow people for a period of time and find that those eating the most red meat had higher rates of cardiovascular disease. However, what if people who eat more red meat also smoke more often? Like what if they're more likely to be smokers, right? It doesn't mean just because the, the meat eaters had higher cardiovascular risk that it was due to the meat. It could be the fact that they just happened to smoke more. And so what you would do is you would compare only the low meat eating group who smoked to the high meat eating group who smoked. And then you would only compare the low meat eating group who didn't smoke to, again, the high meat eating group who didn't smoke. So you're making a fair comparison. And of course, it gets way more complicated than that when you're adjusting for not just smoking, but also body mass index and, and you know saturated fat intake and all these other things. Um, it can get a little more complicated. And, and as you said before, sometimes when you're doing these adjustments, it can reduce the number of people in the comparisons, which then creates a sort of power issue, which means you just don't have enough people in the study to show anything significant. Exactly. That's exactly what happens. And we, we see that a lot like with body mass index and vegan diets, for example. A plant-based diet is an excellent way to lose weight. So if you're adjusting for weight loss, you're actually, in, in many cases, removing one of the benefits of the plant-based diet, but, but uh, you can limit the, the group by doing that. So you, you're sort of explaining the, the advantages of a plant predominant sort of blue zone or, or even a plant exclusive diet. Are there any clinical trials that you like to point to or reference to, to sort of help, further help substantiate that position? Yeah. Yeah. There are a, a few here um, and it depends on what sort of condition we're talking about. And I like to start with heart disease usually because I mean, it's the number one killer in the U S it's number two here in Canada. I'm actually not sure what it is in, in Australia. Do you know? It's number one. Yeah. It's number one. Yeah. And so I like to, to look at um, some of the Mediterranean diet um, studies that we have, actually. The Leon Diet Heart Study is a great one, and this was on secondary prevention. So this means these are people who had already had you know, a heart attack or, or some kind of cardiac event. And so these are the people that probably need the intervention the most, right? These are some of the sickest people. So if we can show great benefit in these people, well, then I'd say that's pretty good evidence that it'd be great from a preventative standpoint as well. And so they had 204 people who were in the control group, just going through standard care, standard um, uh, medical care. And they had 219 people who did a dietary intervention. And so um, the diet intervention was a Mediterranean diet, and they ended up eating more bread, more fruit, more margarine, surprisingly, less meat, less uh, butter, and less cream. And those are some of the significant changes in diet that happened. And this was, uh, they were followed for 46 months. And they actually, the intervention group, the Mediterranean group had more smokers in that group at baseline. So they were already had the cards stacked against them uh, from the beginning. At the end of that intervention, the Mediterranean group had a 72% lower risk of having major cardiac events uh, over, over the um, time of the study. That is a massive decrease in risk in a population who is at very, very high risk of having a cardiac event. Um, and so that's great evidence for at least swapping out some animal foods for plant foods and making it more plant predominant. And that finding is very much consistent with going back to sort of epidemiology when you look at the nutrient substitutions and look at studies where they're looking at the risk of cardiovascular disease if you swap saturated fat for unsaturated fat, for example. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Very consistent. 
Um, and it doesn't end. I mean, we can go through some other trials as well if, if you wanted real quick. We have the PREDIMED st- study that was similar, but a primary prevention trial. So these are people who were considered high risk for cardiovascular disease, but hadn't previously had a heart attack, for example. Um, so you're just preventing. And um, they had over 7,000 people with an average age of 67, and, um, and they were followed for about five years. And while, yes, the Mediterranean diet reduced risk, which is, is great, they actually found that those who scored highest on pro-vegetarian diet scores, meaning those who were even more plant-based, um, they had a 41% lower risk of all-cause mortality. So, so dying by any cause throughout the, the study period. And that's just incredible. Yeah, that's huge. That, that finding often gets overlooked i think yeah yeah i know it's it's one that i think we need to mention more because we have all this epidemiology um showing benefit but this is a randomized controlled trial like that's that's kind of the gold standard hey tell me this this wasn't actually uh where i was going to steer the boat but it's now uh coming to to mind while we're on this and it was quite topical some months ago particularly in the sort of plant-based community and, and Avi and, and danielle Bellato were was sort of uh very much shedding some light on various clinical trials and just providing a perspective in terms of what we need to to understand about these trials and what we can sort of say from their findings. Talk me through the the Dean Ornish and Dr. Esselstyn um, heart trials and what are the, the strengths and weaknesses of those studies and what sort of can and can't we uh, conclude from them? Yeah, and, and so actually in a similar vein to Leon Diet Heart study, we can talk about Ornish's uh, study really quick. And that was, um, again, a, a randomized controlled trial. Uh, this was in people with uh, cor- coronary artery disease. So they had angiographically determined CAD. We knew that they had um, artery disease. And they had, uh, it was a relatively small trial, 28 people um, in the intervention group. And the intervention was a low-fat vegetarian diet. Um, they were allowed to have egg whites and, and a max of one cup of non-fat milk or yogurt per day. They, had, uh, they, they worked on stress management. They did um, do uh, some smoking cessation, although only one person actually smoked uh, at baseline anyway, so it wasn't a big deal. Uh, they were told to exercise, uh, mostly in the form of walking, but they actually weren't all that compliant with that either. So exercise didn't play a huge role. They did attend uh, social support groups and they took a vitamin B12 supplement. Now, the uh, 20 people in the control group just went under standard care um, for their cardiovascular disease. And now at the five-year follow-up, the control group had that, that didn't un- uh, undergo that intervention had two and a half times the risk of having a cardiac event compared to the lifestyle group. So again, significant benefit to the people in the diet and lifestyle group. That is what we care about, right? That is the point that matters here. Now, where, where people like you know, uh, Dr. Bellardo and, and Bitterman, where they had some uh, problems was with the claim around reversal of coronary artery disease. And I mean, I am somebody uh, who has made this claim in the past, absolutely. And, and uh, this is something I've since corrected. And that's because the methods used to measure the change in the stenosis of the artery, the change in the, um, the, in the diameter of the artery, the values weren't significant enough to actually claim clinically relevant reversal. Also, the um, types of measurements that were used were not the gold standard, at least as we know them today. Um, now, as for all the specifics on that, I suggest you go watch their video on it. I'm not, I'm mm-hmm. not going to even pretend to try to um, uh, you know, go through all of that. But um, ultimately, we can't claim based on this. It doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. It's not possible. We just can't claim based on this that we can reverse atherosclerosis. What we can say is that a plant-based diet 
significantly reduces your risk of having a heart attack. And that's what we care about, right? That's, I don't care about the percentage of X, Y, and Z um, on some, some test. What I care about is, are you going to be healthy and able to walk around for the next 10, 15, 20 years? Absolutely. I agree. And I guess we can say that within the context of an overall lifestyle change and, and, you know, adding some exercise, albeit, as you said, the adherence wasn't great and, and, and reducing your stress, but, but clearly a very, very big change within that trial was taking someone off of a standard diet and putting them on an essentially vegan diet with some, some egg whites. So, um, cool. And the, what about the Dr. Esselstyn uh, trials, I should say? Yeah. And, and so the, the issue there with, um, with Dr. Esselstyn's, again, I, I, I love his, his work and what he's done for, for the plant-based movement and all of that, is that it is not a randomized controlled trial for starters. There were 198 people, 21 of them uh, fell off the, pro, or I should say 198 people who were given a plant-based diet, a strictly um, whole foods plant-based diet, low fat. Um, and 21 of them fell off the program. They weren't able to stick with it super long term. And so they were non-adherent. They went back to their previous lifestyle and, and diet and, and that. Um, now, of the 177 who stuck with it, they had a, a, you know, great benefits with, with regard to reduction of having cardiac events. Um, it was excellent. However, there are some issues. And again, I would refer to the video that, that Avi and, and Danielle did because they talk about all the specifics. But there were certain events that were not counted as events just based on the criteria they used. And in addition to that, it's comparing adherence to non-adherence. Now, when we talk about the Leon Diet Heart Study previously, that is everybody in the intervention group compared to everybody in the control group. There are some people in the intervention group who probably weren't all that adherent. And so it's not really an apples to apples comparison if you're comparing just the adherent people in the Esselstyn study versus the, you know, everybody in the Leon Diet Hard study, for example. Again, this is not to say that a plant-based diet isn't incredibly beneficial. I want to just emphasize that incredibly beneficial with regard to cardiovascular disease and prevention. But just the claim around reversal in that I don't think can quite be made because even in Dr. Esselstyn's study, there is that one angiogram that showed reversal of, of coronary artery disease. But that could be a one-off, right? That's just one person. And um, we've seen that. I know cardiologists see that occasionally out of fluke, what it seems like, and, and they don't know exactly what caused it. Yeah, I mean, it's a study that certainly adds to the weight of, of all of the evidence that's out there. But for stronger claims to be made, really, you'd need that control group. Exactly. Like the other studies that you've mentioned. Something else that I think sort of comes, spins off the back of this is that Within the, the plant-based community, there is often this advice to adopt a very low-fat whole food plant-based diet, and it probably does come from the Ornish and Esselstyn trials. What's your recommendation in terms of, of fat intake? Is this something that, that, that people need to keep a very close eye on? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So it depends on the person. It depends on the type of fat we're talking about. So if we're talking about, say, coconut oil or palm oil, these high saturated fat oils, for someone who has cardiovascular disease, absolutely need to get rid of it, um, need to try to limit that as much as possible. 
if we're talking about more the the other plant oils, extra virgin olive oil, for example, it actually has very consistent positive data with regard to to cardiovascular disease. It actually seems to help reduce risk of cardiovascular disease. If you want to play devil's advocate, is it because you're replacing something worse, or is it actually because of uh, inherent benefits? I actually happen to think that there are some inherent benefits as well, but it's it's not going to be like earth shattering. You don't need to have extra virgin olive oil to be healthy. Where I really disagree with the low fat is when it comes to nuts and seeds. They have some of the best outcome data of pretty much all food groups with regard to cardiovascular disease or other health outcomes. Um, the polyunsaturated fats in there, when you replace saturated fats with those polyunsaturated fats, again, significant reductions in cardiovascular disease. And I just don't see any reason to do that. I mean, for all we know, and, and unfortunately, we don't have the study right now, but for all we know, adding some nuts and seeds to Dr. Ornish's trial, for example, might be even better. Right. We just can't we can't say one way or, or the other quite yet. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was the the PrediMed study had one arm of that of that uh, intervention group had nuts and they seem to do about the same as as the group that had the olive oil. Yeah. Yeah. And the uh, the nut group, I think, if I recall correctly, did the best with regard to stroke, too. But yeah, I can't I can't recall entirely on that one. It's funny, coconut oil, every time I, I post about coconut oil and, and suggest that maybe we shouldn't put it in everything and use tablespoons per day. There are, there's a certain section of people out there that completely disagree with me yeah. um, who have, have uh, come to love it, I guess, in, in, in all different types of vegan food. But that's the science. That's, that's what it says today. So that's what's getting shared. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, cool. So we've, we've digressed a little bit, but we're sort of on that topic of what are the advantages of a plant-based style diet. That's, that's heart health. There's definitely advantages for for brain health and 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 Alzheimer's as well. Have you looked at any of that research in terms of prevention of these sort of neurodegenerative diseases? Yeah, I, I have. I'm not maybe quite as in depth as, as some other people, but it seems to me, based on everything I've seen, that a Mediterranean diet is excellent for that, as far as dietary patterns for reducing risk. Um, but also there's studies on what's called the mind diet. And I know you and I have spoken about that a bit. Again, that is a plant predominant diet, but they do place more focus on fish as well, including at least a, a serving a week based on their data. And we have specific plant foods, which also may help benefit brain health, like berries. Berries are one of the ones with the most consistent data. Uh, and so I have just massive uh, load of berries every morning in my oatmeal because I know in addition to making it taste good, uh, they have all these extra cognitive benefits as well. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. Plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. Yeah, and there's clinical trial um, data to support that as well. So there's there's both epidemiology. The, the, the mind diet is really interesting. I've spoken about that before. That was... Uh, came from Martha Morris, I believe, and 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 her team, following a bunch of epidemiology studies. So you're right, like the berries and and dark leafy greens as well, and 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 walnuts, all those sorts of foods. And and that diet, it did have fish in the diet, less emphasis than the Mediterranean diet has on on fish. 
One of the interesting things that came out of that group of researchers, their work, I think I might have shared this with you, was they found that one serving of fish a week was protective against the development of Alzheimer's. Two servings seem to make no difference. Yeah, I know. It's, it's such a funny finding. Yeah, it's a, it's a, that's a funny finding in and of itself. But then what, what I found really interesting was, so one was better than zero statistically. It was significantly better. But the people who were consuming zero were not optimizing their diet for omega-3 intake. So they had they 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 weren't supplementing with with say an algae oil, and they were consuming very very little, basically zero ALA, which was quite surprising. So that I guess that brings me to the importance of omega three intake for someone who's not consuming fish. What what's your recommendations around things that people should think about? For If you're not eating any direct sources of EPA, DHA, and you want to optimize your conversion, you want to make sure you're getting enough of these long-chain omega-3s that you would typically find in fish from plant sources, um, having some ground flax seeds, even like two tablespoons a day, is an excellent way. Really, what we want to do is we want to double the RDA. We want to be getting over over like three grams a day. Um, uh, that, that's kind of the ballpark. And it's very easy to do with flax. Flax is one of the most dense and cheapest forms of omega-3s you can possibly get. So that's that's my go-to. Of course, chia seeds, ground chia seeds are great sources. We've got walnuts, excellent sources as well. I mean, I also want to emphasize that a lot of the benefits we see from, like, say, fish consumption or omega-3 consumption seems to be largely driven by the fact that it replaces meat in the diet. So especially with regard to cardiovascular disease, um, it doesn't seem to be necessarily... Uh, something that's inherently driven by the omega-3s, except in specific cases. If you are somebody with high triglycerides, or if you're somebody who previously had cardiovascular disease or have other comorbidities, it absolutely does seem to be beneficial. Would I say it's necessary to supplement added uh, you know, um, long-chain omega-3s in someone who's ultimately eating a very healthy plant-based diet with a lot of uh, added uh, plant-based omega-3s? I think it's a good idea. I, I certainly think it's, it's a, a good you know, safety net, extra precaution to take. But I also don't think the science is quite 100% there yet outside of pregnancy, breastfeeding, uh, you know, through development and that. Yeah, I agree. It's a, it, it, you, you don't have to. Yeah, yeah, to. yeah. If you choose to, it's a bit of an insurance policy. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, I agree with that. But if you, if you choose not to and you have that, that two to three tablespoons of ground flaxseed a day, then you will be getting adequate amounts of DHA and EPA uh, converted in your body from, from ALA. Yeah, that's what, I see. that's what I've seen anyway based on the data. It seems to be pretty consistent. Yeah, I mean, I personally, I supplement with, uh, I think, a little less than one gram a day. But again, that that is... A little bit from science. I agree. The science is, hasn't actually been, it's not fully elucidated yet and is very much just a, an insurance policy at this stage. Yeah. And I, I recommend, like I, I say basically exactly that to all of my patients. I'll, I'll suggest that, look, um, you're otherwise healthy. If we've done labs, it, it doesn't look like you necessarily need it, but um, you may benefit. Uh, it's really up to you. Of course, there's a cost barrier there with some people because it is one of the more expensive supplements. So I don't want to I don't want to, you know, make them spend money on that if they don't need to. But uh, it, it can, yeah, it can be an added insurance policy, and I think we should be proactive um, rather than than sitting back on a lot of these issues. 
I agree. What's interesting about that, because it is more expensive, and, and I was I was wondering why it was so much more expensive, given that it's derived straight from the source. It's so essentially fish, for anyone who, who may not be across this, get their omega-3s by eating the algae. So the algae is the original form of where DHA and EPA exist in the food chain. And what I've been told though is very recently, and there's a few studies that do support this, there's a few sort of pre-published studies as well that apparently are going to be published in the next year showing that algae oil is absorbed better than fish oil and not just fish oil but also krill oil which has been marketed for a long time as the superior form of omega-3. So I think that if that's the case and that science comes out, you'll see more and more brands starting to use algae oil because it's a it's a unique selling point. And then with mass and and you know larger buying volumes and and whatnot, hopefully the price starts to to fall and it becomes more accessible. Yeah, and, and uh, I know you just shared those studies with me, so I look forward to going to them as well and, t- and taking a peek because that does seem interesting, especially given I've heard many people claim that fish oils are superior, even though I've asked for references and they've never been able to provide, but they've always said that the fish oils are superior in some way. So um, yeah, that'd be a, a great study to have on hand. Have a read of those studies that I've sent across and I'll put those in the show notes. And I should also add that Matt and I are putting together a summary of that Epic Oxford, the new Epic Oxford study on the bone fractures. So that will we'll, we'll try and have that ready for this episode. We'll put that into the show notes as, as well. Slightly uh, shifting gears here. You're a naturopathic doctor, mm-hmm. as I said at the the start. Can you explain what that entails to someone who may not be familiar with it and, and how it's different to a medical doctor? Okay, yeah. And um, I do want to preface this by saying that it is different based on location as well. So I can't necessarily speak on what it is in Australia. I can really just speak on what it is here in, in British Columbia, Canada. And, and I have a pretty good idea of across North America as well. What we do is we go through four years of post-bachelor um, studies. So we have an undergrad. Mine was in microbiology. So I have a BSc in microbiology. And then you go on to do four years of this uh, naturopathic medical training. And within that, the first couple years are really heavily focused on the basic sciences, your physiology, anatomy, biochemistry, uh, microbiology, and so on. So we, we do have a very good grasp and understanding of those topics. Um, but then we get into our treatment modalities. Um, so we do learn about pharmaceuticals. And in fact, you can take here in BC anyway, additional training to be able to prescribe pharmaceuticals. So I do prescribe as well. Like if, you know, if I have a patient with cardiovascular disease, we'll do all the diet intervention, but we'll also be putting them on a statin and, and whatever else is indicated. Um, so we kind of meld the two worlds there as long as they haven't already been put on it, which in most cases they have. Um, and so we have the nutrition, we have the pharmaceuticals, we have botanical medicines as well. There are certain plants that have therapeutic benefits. Um, one off the top of my head would be hibiscus tea for blood pressure. Flax seeds we've already spoken about for cholesterol-lowering benefits. Um, so there are certain ones that do have these uh, pretty well-studied benefits. And so we try to integrate those into treatment as well. And there are, of course, other modalities. Um, it's a pretty broad scope overall. Is, is that sort of leaning on the, the natural plant medicine world where it, it differentiates itself from a, a typical medical doctor? 
Yes. Um, and there might be a, a couple other ways as well, but definitely the larger focus on diet and lifestyle and, um, and uh, botanicals and that. And we actually have sort of a therapeutic order. So of course, in an emergency case, if it's something really significant going on, we're going to go for the, the pharmaceuticals um, or whatever is, is indicated as first line therapy. If somebody comes to me with, um, I don't know, elevated LDL cholesterol and they're of younger age and they don't have any cardiac uh, issues currently, then we're going to take the least invasive, um, more of a base approach around diet and lifestyle, uh, maybe implementing where necessary other you know, supportive therapies like botanicals of anywhere uh, indicated. And then we move on to, if, if we aren't able to do enough there, move on to additional more invasive therapies like pharmaceuticals and that. So we have this sort of stepping or step ladder of approach uh, to our, our overall interventions. And I can't say everybody practices like that, but that's at least uh, the way I was taught and the way that I do practice. So you, you have your own uh, practice in, in Vancouver, right? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a bit more about the type of patients that you see. What, what, what are the, what's the typical sort of patient presentation and what's your approach to counseling them on diet in particular? I get all sorts of patients. It's hard for you, hard for me to give one typical presentation. Um, I have a few different camps. Uh, for one, everybody here knows that I'm sort of the go-to for plant-based diets. So I get a lot of patients who are either interested in just adopting a plant-based diet or who are predominantly or exclusively plant-based, and I can just help them make sure they're they're doing it right. And, and I think that's great. I think it's great to see people being proactive like that. And and I think we need more of that. I also get some parents who want to raise their kids plant-based and then, you know, they'll want to again come to me because maybe their pediatrician isn't necessarily supportive of the idea or, or just don't have the knowledge around uh, plant-based mm. diets, which is fine. It's not something that everyone's going to learn a ton about. And so I'll, I'll work with them on that. Is that raising your kids on a plant-based diet? Is that something that in Canada is, is generally accepted by the community? I would say um, by the overall medical community, it is accepted. I would say by the lay public, not quite as much. I, I know of patients of mine who are heavily criticized by their friends, family and that about what they're doing or about raising their kids plant-based. But overall, I haven't gotten too much pushback from other professionals. I haven't heard of too much pushback from other professionals. So I think it's really just more in the public. And with that sort of particular patient or family presenting, what are the main things that you speak to them about in your in your sessions? Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk about the overall consensus on these issues. I'll talk about the Dietitians of Canada and the uh, Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics um, position papers stating that, you know, well-planned vegan diets suitable for all stages of life. And we'll go through that. I'll also show them the outcome data. We have some data on growth in uh, young children up to age three. We actually have some really old data on, on older kids as well. But we have this data suggesting that there aren't issues with growth and development. And so I'll talk those over too. And then we have data from the Adventist cohorts looking at um, children or teenagers and their um, nutrient intake, and they tend to be great um, overall. Plant-based uh, kids tend to be doing really well. And the funny thing about these parents that'll come in to see me that are you know concerned around their, their child's nutrition is they are feeding them so incredibly well. Like that's the thing. When people are coming to me because they're concerned about making sure they're hitting all their nutrient needs... I don't think they understand how much better than the general population they are doing. Um, these are people who are being so proactive. And, and yeah, I, I consistently see they're just super, super healthy. It's, it's funny because there's almost this 
false sense of security with the standard Western diet, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think yeah. about it myself. I, I cruised through 20-odd years of my life and never thought about the vitamins and minerals that perhaps I wasn't ticking off on a daily basis. I never drilled down on it. No one ever asked me. But as soon as you start you know, changing your diet and if you say you're adopting a plant-based diet, then everyone wants to make sure you're getting every single vitamin and mineral I know, I know. It's it's so funny, and and um, but it's also reassuring to see people like a lot of my patients come in who are just doing excellent. Okay, so that's that's families, yeah. And, and you mentioned people coming in who are, I presume, sort of highly motivated. They've heard about you. They want to to shift their diet, so they're coming in quite motivated. You're giving them the the tips and skills and and nutrition information that they need to feel confident and walk away with and put into practice. What about someone presenting who? as a health concern, whether it be something like pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes, and perhaps they haven't come to you for the plant-based information specifically, how do you counsel someone like that on their diet? And does the, the sort of vegan diet ever come into it or do you keep the sort of ethical side of the way that you eat or, you know, outside of that conversation? Okay. Um, yeah, I'll actually kind of share a, a case uh, as we go over this. Um, I had one patient, uh, maybe I feel like it's almost a year ago now, come in with uh, really high LDL cholesterol, was having some chest pain, doesn't uh, doesn't have any history of cardiovascular disease up to that point, and LDL cholesterol was super high. And um, so he's he's seeing his his uh, medical medical doctor as well, and, and we're co managing, and, and it's great. But when I started talking to him, I basically presented the data I just did with you a little while ago on cardiovascular disease. And I was like, look, this is these are the numbers. If you want to prevent any kind of worsening of this condition or any kind of cardiac events moving forward, these are the best routes to go. And within that, I present options. I'm like, look, there's the Mediterranean diet. There's the strictly plant-based diet. There's uh, actually the portfolio diet, which you can kind of meld with the plant-based diet. And I, I just presented all the information there. And with regard to LDL lowering, I was talking about, you know, the portfolio style diet, especially, which for those of you listening who don't know, it's, it was uh, uh, created by a Canadian researcher, uh, David Jenkins as well. And it focuses on foods that are specifically known to lower cholesterol. So things like oats, um, okra, eggplant, soy, almonds, there's just specific foods you need to focus on. And so I told him all this information. And that I think is the power there. You, you give them the information, you allow them to make that informed decision. It would actually be unethical for me to bring my personal ethics into the decision making and only present the vegan option, right? Um, but that just wouldn't be fair. And so when it comes to clinical recommendations, I need to present that information. Now, given how good the, the data is, a lot of the times they'll want to push for that. And lo and behold, just um, long story short, he went for the plant-based diet with focus on the more portfolio style diet. And he brought his LDL down in like two months from 3.4 millimoles per liter down to 1.9. And that's just incredible, right? That, that's, a, that's like what a statin would do, you know? It's a, it, was, it was such a stark um, a benefit. And then his chest pain went away. And so when we see these sorts of changes happen, I, I mean, if I didn't present those options, he never would have done it. And that's my biggest issue with uh, professionals who maybe don't want to recommend a plant-based diet because they've seen the science, but because they think patients won't do it, is you're removing that patient's autonomy from the decision-making. You're making the decision for them and people will surprise you, right? You don't know who's going to actually bite and, and, and go for it. You know, for every person that goes for it, that could be a life save. 
And so I, I'm all about presenting the information, allowing people to make those decisions. And at the end of the day, if he went, let's say this patient, and he was incredibly adherent, but let's say he went plant-based and was only 80% adherent. That's probably better than if he had gone Mediterranean and only been 80% adherent, just based on the types of foods that are likely making up that 20%. So that's kind of my take on it and, and how I go about presenting the information. I actually pull up studies and charts sometimes with my patients if they're really into it and go over that with them too. And in terms of the tips and tricks to help people make these changes stick, because I think sometimes we forget we're talking about someone's real life here. They've eaten for a certain way for, it could be two decades, it could be three, four, five, six, like a long, long time. So you have this, how long are your consultations? Um, first one's an hour and then follow-ups, uh, it can vary typically maybe half hour or so. Okay. So you get a good amount of time. That's much better than a lot of people. What kind of strategies or information do you arm them with to give them the greatest chance of having success with these changes? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I do have uh, some handouts I'll give sometimes. I love for kids anyway, the pediatric quick start guide from the plantrician project. So I do have some resources for people, but I like to, to look at each patient as an individual. I don't like giving a blanket sort of handout and like, go do this. So, um, I'll give you two different examples here. Let's say I have a patient who, um, is already doing fairly well diet wise, but can definitely use some I- improvement. In that case, I can just look at their individual meals and tweak them. Like, let's say somebody's doing their dinners are a white pasta spaghetti or something, right, with the tomato sauce. To make it healthier, we'll swap out the, the white pasta for whole wheat pasta, but maybe we want some more veggies in there. We'll chop up some broccoli, throw it into the sauce, maybe chop up some kale, um, onions, and, and maybe cook up some lentils to give it that meaty texture. Maybe they liked you know, ground beef sauce before. And so we can almost tweak their foods from, from subpar to incredibly healthy uh, very easily. And it's already something they like. I think that's key. We know they already like that food. And so we'll go through their diet and do that. That's if they're already on the right path, though. If we're talking about a complete diet overhaul, I go one meal at a time. Unless in some cases they want to go all in, but I don't find it sticks very well. So usually I'll go one meal at a time. Uh, let's say it's just a terrible standard Western diet. Uh, we'll go breakfast. Let's try out a few different breakfast options for the next two weeks. I'll provide them with different recipes for some quick and easy things like whole wheat um, avocado toast, um, maybe uh, or a nut butter kind of toast. Um, and maybe we'll do some oatmeal, some tofu scramble. Uh, we'll provide them with some just simple, tasty, easy recipes. And they'll do it for a couple weeks. They'll play around. They'll find what they like. They'll come back. If they aren't enjoying it, then we'll change it up, try some other foods. If they are enjoying it and it's stuck, great. Now we can move on to lunch. And then we'll do it. And over time, they'll eventually get the hang of it to where it's not really something to think about anymore. Uh, For myself, it's not like I think about what I'm going to eat each day. I just know what my go-tos are. And and at this point, it's super easy. And I'm sure it's kind of the same with you. Um, So we need to build that habit because it's a habit you've built over your entire life right? That you're eating these foods and, and they're your go-to. So you just have to change them. And I think it's better to do it in that sort of stepwise approach. Yeah, I agree. And I don't know about you, but perhaps you can actually share your transition story with me because I'd love to hear that. But from from my perspective, I always remind myself that I stepped things out pretty slowly and I was getting information from lots of different people. I was I was doing what exactly what you said. I had my sort of set 
breakfast, lunch, and dinner that I was having. And I was kind of that person who thought I was eating very healthy. And I probably only needed to actually just tweak a few little things. And that's what I did at the start. I just swapped out the chicken for tofu in the in the stir fry. I swapped my my eggs for a tofu scramble. I made little tiny swaps like that at the start without sort of the expectation of, of needing to be plant exclusive overnight. And you pick up all these new little skills and you get confidence making that dish and that dish and then slowly it just pieces together. Yeah. And um, I mean, mine was mine was a bit funny, I guess, my transition. I was like 15 when I started. Um, as a kid, I had some health issues. I had asthma, allergies, so I was overweight. And I had actually a personal trainer and he really pushed more of a plant-based diet. He wasn't, you know, strictly plant-based or anything. He was like 95% or so, uh, mostly plant-based and uh, actually big into the raw food world. And so I never followed his advice. Like I just didn't care. I was a kid. Um, (laughs) But at one point he wanted me to record everything I ate. He wanted me to do a food diary, which I should mention is something I also do with my patients, just get them to record for a week. Um, So he wanted me to record, I think it was for two weeks, everything that I ate. And I was terrified. My diet sucked. It was so bad at the time uh, that he was going to see that and just be so disappointed and work me extra hard in the gym because it already was really hard. <laughs> um, and so I, rather than, I didn't cheat on the the, the survey or, or the um, food diary. I actually changed my diet. Um, so for those couple weeks, I thought I'm just going to impress the guy, right? I'm going to trick him into thinking I'm super healthy. And so I cut out all the dairy. I cut out all the classic junk foods like your sodas, your potato chips and that. Uh, and just ate way more plants. It was super simple. And I started losing weight within the two weeks. My um, skin cleared up, my asthma improved, my allergies improved. Again, this is all anecdotal. I don't want to put too much talk into that, but I saw these great improvements. And at that point, I just thought, well, maybe he's on to something, right? Maybe he kind of knows what he's talking about. Uh, so I decided to stick with it. And over the next few years there, I just kept learning more and more as much as I could. I kept reading, I kept experimenting until I went to university. And, um, and at university, while I was living on residence in my dorms, I was, um, I was eating cafeteria food again. I was still probably healthier than most of my friends uh, as far as diet uh, goes, but, but definitely sliding back the other way. I was, I was drinking on the weekends. And uh, it wasn't until my second semester, there was one day, and I remembered it was February 24th, 2011. I was just sitting in the cafeteria with, with uh, chicken on my plates. And i uh, honestly, I was probably hungover. I couldn't tell you, and uh, just wasn't feeling my best. I, I could tell my health had slid the other way, and I decided right at that moment that I'm going 100 percent all in. I I just I don't want to have any more of these you know these temptations and things that I could I could draw it. And uh, my friends thought I was crazy, but here I am, ten years later, <laughs> and uh, stuck with it and just kept learning more and more. So at that at that stage, had you connected to say the the ethical aspect or the planetary health aspect, or was that something you came across later? So here's the funny thing: prior to making that change, I, I mean, it sounds bad, but I just didn't care. Um, like I, I didn't, not that I didn't care, I didn't want to hear it. Um, so even from the ethical standpoint, like I actually didn't join the vegan club at my university in those first years because I thought they were crazy, <laughs> which now I'm one of those people, <laughs> um, but. Uh, I just didn't want to hear it uh, because, I mean, nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants to see that stuff. But once I made the change, once I made that dietary change, it was all in 100%. And I knew how possible it was. I knew how healthy I could be. I knew that it was a way that I wanted to live forever forever at that point. I 
watched um, a couple years later, I actually watched Earthlings. And that's what ultimately started to lead me down that road of, of getting into the ethics. And then later on came the environmental health. But for me personally, and I know some other people with similar stories, I needed to make the change before I was really open to hearing that side of it. I just didn't want to when, when I was contributing to it. Yeah, I think I was very much the same. I often say that I can't remember an exact sort of day or situation, but I'm sure if, if, if someone at my university was handing out a vegan flyer, I would have been the guy that put my head down and didn't draw eye contact so I could just walk past. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't want to stop and, and engage in that. And I just, I, I never, I never really had a friend or a family member who could sort of explain to me what the 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 animal exploitation that was occurring and 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 so for me it took me to to make these changes for myself and then that made it very apparent that eating the animal products that I was was no longer necessary and yeah. i think that's when the penny dropped and melon dr melanie joy who i know you know she was on my show last week and she talks about these defense systems these sort of carnistic defense systems she calls them and one of them were the three ends which were i believe natural normal and necessary and it's it is a really really big one because it's not until you understand that it's not necessary for many people that you can then, you know, properly connect with, with sort of that pillar of veganism. Yeah. And that's the key. We always say unnecessary suffering or unnecessary death. Like that's the, that's the key phrase that we always bring up when we're talking about animal rights. And um, if you truly believe it's necessary, then it is no longer unnecessary, right? It, it's hard to connect with that until you understand that it is truly unnecessary. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you'll find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. I also like that you brought up in your example of, of dietary changes, you had uh, avocado on toast, which is a, that's a big thing here in Australia. <laughs> is, it, is, that, is that big in Vancouver? Oh yeah. Oh, it's huge. I, I actually don't eat it very much. Um, I, funny enough, I did have some uh, today, but it's very rare for me to do that. Um, I typically have oatmeal for breakfast. I was just in a rush. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think it is super, super common. Every cafe does does their own version of it. Mm, there was a joke here a couple of years ago. Someone said that young Australians were having problems saving for their first home because they were spending yeah. all their money on on very expensive avocado on toast. Yeah, um, And you mentioned imagine. tofu scramble. I think I found the key ingredient for tofu scramble. Perhaps not great if you're on a very low salt diet. You don't need to add a lot, but have you ever tried black salt? Oh yeah, that's great. Wow. I mean, if you're if you're if you're sort of new to tofu scramble, tofu scramble, or perhaps you've tried one and you didn't love it, I would highly recommend giving it a go. And you only need to add a very small amount because it it's it's very strong, but it adds a little bit of that sort of eggy flavor through it. Yeah, I need I need either um, some black salt or some hot sauce. I need one or the mm. other on my uh, yeah, or both. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, okay. Cool. So 
this is we're, we're, we've been talking a, a bit about the the patients that that come and see you at your clinic. Now, I'm sure that there are a bunch of very very common questions that that people ask, particularly if you're talking about completely removing or at least sort of dramatically downshifting on animal products and. This is sort of just, I guess, a result of the way that we've been brought up and, and very much conditioned by society to, to, to see animal products as, as protein, for example, and, and iron or, or, or dairy as calcium. Let's go through some of these, I guess, very common questions that you get. And, and you can, uh, if you feel like rapid firing or delving into it deeper, then uh, be my guess. It's up to you. Let's start with, with protein. So what do you say when a patient says, without my, my chicken and, and my beef and, and my eggs, where, where will I get my protein from? Um, so I like to ask them what their concerns are first. So if they're, if they're just asking where you get your protein, well, that's easy. Legumes, tofu is a great source. Lentils, fantastic. But all foods contain some amount of protein, of course. Nuts and seeds will contain a little bit more than your veggies, of course. Uh, but just making sure that you're getting an overall variety of foods in your diet. However, I will usually ask them what their specific concerns are. And there's a few common ones. For one, they believe that you know, plants don't contain all of the essential amino acids. That is false. All plants contain all of the essential amino acids, however, in varying amounts. So some foods will contain less of certain amino acids and, and more of others and, and vice versa. The beautiful thing is our bodies are very smart. So when you eat um, foods that are maybe higher in one amino acid and less lower in the others, they'll actually combine with the amino acids you already have in your body. And um, we, put, we maintain these amino acid pools so it can make complete proteins and the excess will again remain in your uh, amino acid pools until your next meal. On top of that, we don't eat just one food, right? We eat multiple foods per meal, I should hope anyway, that we're not just you know, mono-mealing on single things. And when you're doing that, you're going to have an overall complete amino acid profile. Um, now, the other uh, thing that comes up is protein digestibility is that you know, plant proteins are, are inferior to animal proteins in some way. And uh, this is also sort of true, but not entirely. And that's because there are two scales that are used. There's the PDCAS, Protein Digestibility Corrected Amino Acid Score, and there's the DS, Digestible Indispensable Amino Acid Score. And it's important to know how these are, are measured. So the PDCAS is measured by feeding... Um, a single food uh, to, you know, whatever plant food or animal food to rats, typically, seeing how much protein comes out the other end and measuring the difference. And that would be supposedly the amount that was absorbed. A couple issues there were not rats. <laughs> and there's, uh, there's um, the issue of, of uh, bacterial digestion in the gut as well. So not necessarily all of it is being absorbed by us. Then moving on to the Diaz score, it's similar, but they typically feed the, the foods to pigs. And they insert a tube through the side of the abdomen until the end of the small intestine. And that eliminates the additional digestion that would be done by the, um, large, by the bacteria in the large intestine. So they're measuring how much um, protein is digested throughout the small intestine. And you can measure the difference. Again, we're not pigs, but it's closer to a human digestive tract. But another big, big issue is that they use raw foods typically. And if you're, if you're um, using raw legumes, for example, they aren't going to be as digestible and as bioavailable as cooked legumes. And so, um, and, and these are typically based on um, measurements of the limiting amino acid. 
So if you're feeding a food with the um, that with one amino acid that is maybe available in a smaller proportion, it is based on that specific amino acid. So you're already limiting your intake. Um, and of course, we eat a variety of foods. We should eat better, more balanced meals than that. So there, yeah. So there's a few big issues with that. But we have human data. We have limited human data, but we have human data called true ileal digestibility. And that is a similar idea to what is done in the pigs, but it's actually done in humans. And when we do that, we find that the differences in digestibility are very minimal. Um, at most, if we're comparing a poorly uh, available plant food to to some of the, the animal foods, maybe there's a 10% difference. But in a lot of cases, if you're using more digestible sources, it's like a few percent. It's not really something to worry about. And I guess to bring that back to context, if you look at the amount of protein that you require, uh, you know, for, for optimal adequate uh, function based on the on the recommendations, and then you, let's say, as an insurance policy, you increase that by ten percent for someone who was adopting a a plant based diet, that number is super achievable to reach. Yeah, very, very, very achievable. It's super easy. Yeah. And if someone was concerned for whatever reason, or if you're into bodybuilding and you really want to maximize your protein intake, possibly adding a powder in there, a protein powder isn't a terrible idea. But um, for the most part, it's super achievable um, and very easy to do. Yeah, I've done a, a post before, a couple of posts before on on protein for for different levels of activity. And you're absolutely right. Like if your goal is to build muscle and bodybuilding and you want to do that on a plant-based diet, you can easily meet that level, which is around, you know, 1.6 grams per kilo is around the sort of threshold where you'd want to be targeting, even if you added 10% on because you were getting that from all plant-based sources, easily done. And, you know, as you just said, then if you, if you'd like, and it's easier to fit into your overall sort of diet, you can add a protein powder in pretty easily. Yeah, exactly. And it's not like the, it's not like meat eaters aren't doing that already anyway. Oh, they're all doing it. Yeah. They're, 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 they're smashing the whey shakes and, yeah. and, and have been for years. They quickly forget that when they, when they point out, oh, you're having a, a pea protein shake. It's like, I'm pretty sure most of the protein that's sold in, in health food shops is, is whey protein. Yeah. And, it's been like that for, for a long time. And, and we have direct comparisons. We have direct randomized controlled trial comparisons of pea, soy, or rice protein against whey protein. And when it comes to actual strength or muscle mass gains, no difference. So again, no argument there. Exactly. You mentioned legumes and you were talking about with the, the DS, I believe it was, they were feeding raw or uncooked plant-based proteins. And that brings me to lectins. Okay. Thinking perhaps in recent years, uh, since the plant paradox was written, perhaps some of your patients or, or definitely people online, I'm sure have messaged you before about this idea of lectins being toxic for us. And, and, and obviously legumes are rich, rich in, in lectins. Can you walk me through what your sort of typical response to that is? Yeah, yeah. So um, that is based on Dr. Gundry's plant paradox, of course, or at least that's where it became most famous. And um, it's the idea that certain plant foods, especially kidney beans, contain these lectins, which uh, are thought to be poisonous to humans. And it is true that if you eat raw um, red kidney beans, you can get lectin poisoning. Uh, and that's not a good thing. We don't want it. You'll be vomiting. Uh, it can be really serious. But we cook our legumes. And when you cook these legumes for even 10, 15 minutes, you boil them, 
um, you destroy all the lectins. They're gone, right? So, and we boil our legumes or our beans uh, for a lot longer than typically 10 or 15 minutes. So the lectins are completely gone in that case. Now, certain lectins aren't actually like those kidney bean lectins. Um, lectins in broad beans or lectins in tomatoes may actually have anti-cancer properties as well. Based on petri dish studies, of course, we can't take too much from it, but they may actually have beneficial uh, effects. And on top of all of that, when we look at foods linked to longevity, legumes have the best data. They are the single food most linked to longevity. If we look at the blue zone populations, all of them eat legumes. Um, so this is not something at all that we want to be limiting in the diet. And just to, um, just to talk about plant paradox uh, for a second, you can fact check the references in there. And honestly, they don't back up the claims. Uh, the very first reference in the entire book um, says that eggs and shellfish lower cholesterol. And the study that is referenced found that a diet that includes shellfish but removes eggs lowered cholesterol. Do you see, like, it's completely backward. It's just, he's falsifying the... the There's a lot of mental gymnastics to, to <laughs> yeah, land at that conclusion. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's unbelievable. So, um, no, I would not place any stock in that. I would not follow the advice laid out in The Plant Paradox, and I would eat your legumes. That's an, that's an interesting point in and of itself, the the sort of the methodology of certain trials and, yeah. and this whole idea of compared to what yeah. is a very interesting thing. And we're digressing a little bit here, but you are someone who's highly trained in reading science. You spend a lot of time doing it. You understand going through the, the statistical analysis and the methodology. You understand things to look out for. What tips do you have for someone who doesn't have that training, who is subject to changing headlines that are pointing to a new study, which has found a new finding, which flips nutrition recommendations on its head? Like how, how can someone navigate that? Yeah, that's tough. So just some background on what got me so interested in really learning this stuff was when I was at school, I was constantly combated by other students about my dietary preferences and and, uh, you know, the benefits of, of plant-based diets. And while I certainly had a fair number of answers, I didn't have all of them. And I could present really good cases for my arguments. But if I ever got stumped on even one thing, because I'm the vegan, um, all of a sudden I'm wrong and, and, and I'd get ganged up on and that. And so it just drove me nuts. And it drove me to the point of wanting to be able to answer every question. Like that was my goal. I know it's a, it might sound a little crazy, but that's where I came from. It, is it came from this idea that, I don't want to not know how to answer these questions. And I started by, I mean, looking at some of the, the big plant-based doctors, looking at, you know, Garth Davis, when he does his breakdowns of, of different studies, looking at, um, obviously, uh, nutritionfacts.org has a bunch of videos. And I really love the saturated fat videos on that website in particular, where he breaks that down. The ones where they, they look at how studies can be misleading, because there's so much nuance within the world of nutrition that it's hard for someone to just jump in and understand where the flaws are going to be. So you have to look at, you know, maybe other people who have already dissected these. I think that's huge. But when you're looking at studies, there are a few things you want to focus on. And this, I think, can just be a practice. Focus in on one area, choose a topic you want to learn about, say, make it LDL cholesterol, and start diving into the research. And there's a few things. You want to look at what are they adjusting for? That's huge. You want to know what factors are being adjusted for in a given study. We've already talked about adjustment earlier, but are they missing something huge? Are we looking at a, a LDL cholesterol study that didn't adjust for, I don't know, smoking, for example, and it was a confounded in, in one way or another? You want to know these sorts of issues. You also 
want to um, look at baseline characteristics of a study. I think that is one that is way overlooked. So when you look at any kind of study, let's actually talk about a, a randomized trial. This is one on, on, uh, that I can pull off the top of my head on amla berry powder. Um, amla is Indian gooseberry, for those of you who don't know, very high in antioxidants. Um, there's a study suggesting that it lowers LPA, which is one of our atherogenic uh, lipoproteins. And so it's a randomized controlled trial, which sounds great. They have two groups, a placebo group and a um, AMLA group. They give them the, the supplement and they found that the AMLA group lowered their LPA. Again, sounds fantastic. But I looked at the baseline characteristics. And when you look at the baseline characteristics, where these patients started from or where these participants started from, you'll find that the people who were given LPA, I mean, sorry, given AMLA had higher LPA to start. So they had a greater room to fall, right? They had more space there. Whereas the uh, control group or the placebo group started at a lower bar. So they had less to, to decrease just uh, due to placebo effect alone. And so you want to make sure that there are fair comparisons happening. So baseline characteristics, you want to look at adjustments. And uh, beyond that, I think it just comes down to practice. I, I, I think those are some of the big ones that I always go to, my first go-to things. And then, um, and then it just comes down to practice and understanding the nuance. You can't jump into literature on, and this is going to be over, over some people's heads, but you can't just jump into literature on saturated fat intake and not understand how adjusting for for ldl levels is a problem right like this is something and that would take i feel a, a lot of time to really understand i know you're going to do a good job of that in your book coming up um because i've, I've seen let's hope so yeah 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 no just, just i've seen a little bit of it so so I, i'm sure um, that's going to help explain to people what exactly the issues there are yeah i mean that was the biggest challenge is trying to arm someone with that information without overwhelming Exactly, and I, and I probably just overwhelmed to be honest. No, I think I think what you what you spoke to is really important, but I also think that there may be someone listening with that's thinking, well, that's that's a little bit too much for me. And then in that case, I think the the best way forward for you is to find people that can communicate the research and break it down, who you trust and who you have faith in 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 what their agenda is and and why they're communicating the message or their message and, and their advice and getting them to look at that study or seeing if, if they already have reviewed it or perhaps they can point you to someone that else that has done it that they respect. And, you know, that can be a, a great sort of shortcut for someone who doesn't necessarily have the time to, to delve into all of the studies. Yeah, and I think that's where the problem is because when you ask the question, it's really hard to tell somebody how to go about this on their own. That's what's really difficult. It it makes a world of difference to have people to, to follow, to um, talk with. Um, I, I know I've been uh, teaching at one of the nutrition schools here in, in uh, Vancouver, and you know, we'll finish our lectures early, and I'll spend the last half hour going over these various topics and studies and just kind of teaching them the ins and outs of the research. And that's, I think, where they really learn it. And it can be hard because there are so many experts online, to often with different opinions, to work out, well, who 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 is that voice of reason that I should trust? And there's no formula for deciding that. That's you, you, you need to work out who it is that you trust. But I think ultimately you want to find people that are logically consistent. Yeah. 
And Huge. if they're if they're logically consistent and they're someone who you know has changed their opinion on something, that's usually a great sign. Or someone who's receptive to having open conversations with someone who has a different opinion and changing their perspective based on what the data says, then you know they're probably signs that you're you're on the right path with finding someone to give you good information. I think you just nailed it. People who are open to that conversation and are open to changing their opinions. I know we've talked about people that we may interact with online who are not willing to, to do those things and are not willing to engage in conversation or um, you know, change their views when confronted with, with conflicting data. And I think that is an issue. So those are definitely things to look out for. Okay, so we spoke about a few of the, the common questions there. Um, we've kind of already touched on on dairy, I feel, at the, at the calcium at the, at the start and that you can get enough calcium in your diet without consuming dairy. Obviously, something that you do want to focus on and, and having some calcium-fortified dairy alternatives can be a great way of, of helping bump up that calcium intake. The other one that I think that you probably get quite a bit is soy. And it just seems like this topic is never going away it's it's yeah. it's 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 always something that is fought over there's always someone posting something about soy being absolutely toxic and then there's the other side what does the science show yeah and i do want to say too if concerns around soy are the reason someone isn't adopting a plant-based diet that just doesn't make sense to me because you don't have to eat soy <laughs> you can do it other ways but on the topic of soy yeah, it's, there's so much information. The big um, concern that people have is around estrogens and that it's going to be estrogenic, especially bad for men. Um, well, if we look at the actual um, data, randomized controlled trial data, we have meta-analyses now on uh, the effects of, of soy on hormones in both men and women. No change. And as well, no, no estrogenic effects in men as far as like breast growth and that. So we don't see um, any results like that. Where the, the concerns come from are two case studies, isolated case studies, so two men in all of the literature who were consuming in the ballpark of 12 to 20 servings of soy a day. Uh, we're talking a gallon or four liters of soy milk and other products on top of that every day. And they ran into, they um, experienced some gynecomastia. And even then, if you read the papers, they aren't entirely convinced it was even due to the soy, but it's just a theory. And you can't ever draw conclusions on a case study. But just nobody's recommending that amount of consumption because we want you to eat a varied diet. The other concerns also come from uh, rodent studies often where they'll feed rodents either, um, not even soy most of the time, usually isolated phytoestrogens from soy products and, and high doses of them. And they'll run into problems. But again, we're not rodents and we don't consume soy that way. We consume them in, in more modest amounts uh, in uh, you know, regular soy foods. So on the estrogen note, no issue, no reason to worry about it. And actually, soy phytoestrogens, they typically bind to different sorts of receptors in our body than, than other sorts of estrogens would. These are known as beta receptors or estrogen receptor beta. And these can have different effects in different parts of the body. So in bone tissue, for example, um, they have pro-estrogenic effects. And you want estrogenic activity on bone tissue. It helps actually um, maintain bone mineral density. In breast tissue, on the other hand, it has anti-estrogenic effects and can combat the estrogenic effect and, and the, the breast cancer risk, which is why soy consumption is consistently associated with lower breast cancer risk, um, as well as in those who are at higher risk um, with the BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene mutations. And I mean, for men, and this is 
this is limited evidence. This is by no means super comprehensive, but there's limited evidence around dairy increasing the risk of prostate cancer. Yeah. And there is some observational findings that the consumption of soy is protective against prostate cancer. Yeah. And actually there is a, from this year, and I, I recently posted about it, there is an umbrella review of meta-analyses on soy. So this was a, a review of 114 meta-analyses on soy and different health outcomes. And they found, I can't remember them all off the top of my head, but soy reduced the risk of breast cancer, ovarian cancer, prostate cancer, endometrial cancer, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes. And the list went on and on and on. And, and the only risk they found was that um, miso soup uh, at one to five servings a day increased the risk of stomach cancer, um, particularly in men. And um, that was due to the sodium content. That wasn't even because it was soy. That was because it was so high in sodium and, and sodium increases stomach cancer risk. So there's really no reason to fear that food. And it's incredibly nutritious, great source of calcium, protein, uh, fiber. So it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's definitely something I encourage people to consume in their diet. In terms of the amount, I think in Australia anyway, the, the typical sort of recommendations are, and this is from, I think, Cancer Council Australia. It's, it's not an official sort of guideline or position statement, but I think their recommendation is around one or two serves of soy is great within a healthy plant-based diet. And that seems to be in line with the soy consumption from cultures who have traditionally consumed soy. Yeah. And it's funny, if you look at Western populations and data in Western populations that don't find a benefit from soy consumption, they're consuming like a serving every couple of weeks. <laughs> like it's such a, uh, at that level of, of exposure, you're not going to notice benefits. It is more that daily, daily consumption where you're actually going to see the improvements. So one or two serves a day and, and ideally from sort of uh, as whole or minimally processed yeah. forms of soy. Yeah. I mean, if you're having what I would call processed forms, I would talk about like tofu or soy milk. Uh, but of course, you can go for more more whole forms like tempeh or um, or edamame and those uh, or just whole soybeans. Cool. We spoke earlier about a few of the supplements um, and I guess nutrients of focus. We spoke about B12. We spoke about vitamin D. We've touched on omega-3. We've touched on calcium. Are there any other supplements that you would say are necessary or are sort of nutrients that you would like Pete to, to draw some attention to? Yeah. So vitamin B12, anybody on a plant-based diet, I know you can get it from fortified foods. I just would not risk limiting um, to fortified foods because you might not get enough and absorption varies depending on how much you consume at one time. So take a vitamin B12 supplement. I definitely recommend that. Uh, cyanocobalamin, which is the most widely studied form, is also the cheapest form. You can get a year supply for, for like a few dollars if you take a dose of about 2,500 micrograms once a week. That's, that's the kind of standard recommendation around that. And of course, it varies depending on age and everything and, and work with your own um, healthcare provider, of course, on figuring out what the proper dose is. But B12, absolutely, 100% um, people should be taking. Uh, vitamin D, uh, depending on where you are, we've already spoken about it. I don't think we need to touch on that too much. But like here in Canada, yeah, I, I do typically recommend it. Omega-3s, again, we've already spoken about that. It's um, in certain cases, like in those with cardiovascular disease or in those with mild cognitive impairment, and especially through pregnancy and breastfeeding, it is, is quite important and, and can be very beneficial um, in an otherwise healthy person. It's a good insurance policy if you want to be careful there. 
And one that doesn't get enough um, press, I don't think. And actually, a, a new paper came out this morning, or maybe it was yesterday, on on uh, iodine status in uh, vegans, vegetarians, and pescatarians. This one uh, found that they were all deficient in iodine. The funny thing is they didn't include an omnivore group because omnivores are always uh, also typically iodine deficient. So iodine, regardless of diet, is something you want to be concerned about. Now you can, um, I don't always recommend supplements, you can get it through, um, through sea vegetables. So things like nori or dulse or wakame, um, it's a, a great source. Also, if you're including salt in your diet, using an iodized salt uh, can be a way to include it. You do want to make sure you're getting some consistent source of iodine, though. And if you aren't uh, a fan of, of sea vegetables, and um, if you aren't somebody who's uh, using salt on a regular basis, well, then maybe you rely on a supplement. And I should note that as far as sea vegetables go, kelp actually isn't a great one to, to use for iodine because it might have too much, and you end up with too much iodine, and that's not a good thing either. Yeah. Jeez, you're on. You're onto the science when you're you're bringing cutting edge, breaking news to the podcast here. I've just found that paper. It's an open access paper, so I will. I'll put that. Is that the? It's the Norway. Yeah, Norway. Cohort, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll put that into the show notes. But thanks for for sneaking that one in. <laughs> no problem. Always good. I agree that iodine is overlooked. It's something as you say, is not just a, a vegan thing. I mean, that study had pescatarians in it and vegetarians as well. And I mean, the funny thing is that dairy through the way that they clean the machinery and, and all of that is is a source of iodine. So um, that goes to show that it's, it's definitely not bulletproofing the vegetarians there. And actually, that's why we have iodized salt and, and iodine sort of fortified bread because governments have recognized that a large percentage of the public are not getting enough iodine. So I'm glad that you've drawn attention to that. Is that pretty much all of the the supplements or or nutrients that you'd like people to to focus on? Do you do you ever uh, touch on on selenium and Brazil nuts at all? Oh yeah, yeah. Actually, that's a good point. I I take a, I take a Brazil nut every day. <laughs> Personally, I eat one uh, usually with my smoothie or, or something for lunch. Yeah. So for selenium, actually, oats can be a decent source too, depending on how much you eat. I eat such massive portions that I get enough through through oats, but not everybody's going to be eating as much. So selenium is something that we want to think about. It's important for thyroid health and has a bunch of other functions in the body as well. Um, and yeah, just having a, a Brazil nut or two uh, on a regular basis, uh, on a daily basis is going to absolutely help you meet your needs on that. So I wouldn't worry about a supplement though, unless you really, for some reason, hate Brazil nuts. Hmm, that's a pretty easy one to yeah. take off. Yeah. Um, and, and, and as you say, like you're getting selenium in quite a few plant foods. It, it is building up that Brazil nut is essentially just ensuring that you're over the recommended amount into, into the, into the sort of healthy range. And it's not going to put you in, into a sort of toxic level yeah. at all, unless you had about 20 or so. Okay, cool. What about monitoring? our nutritional adequacy in terms of blood tests. Do you have a sort of standard protocol in terms of the frequency of blood tests that you like people to get? And perhaps that's dependent on the health of the individual and, and, and where they are in their life. And are there any sort of specific tests that you think are, are worth people chatting to their doctor about requesting? It's funny because it is entirely dependent on the person and what we're dealing with. Um, I actually 
wouldn't necessarily test for things like uh, B12 or, or that uh, because I just recommend they take a supplement. It's, it's that simple. If you wanted to make sure you're getting enough, uh, methylmalonic acid is actually the best test for that. Serum B12 can be misleading. Methylmalonic acid will actually tell you if you have enough B12 in your body and if it's doing its job. Um, so that is what you want to ultimately test there. You can test vitamin D status, but like I mentioned earlier, we don't really test it in Canada because it's just cheaper to assume that people are deficient. Again, if somebody wants to test it, and um, unfortunately they'd have to pay out of pocket typically, uh, they can do it. And so we'll do that. For most of the other uh, nutrients there, we don't really test. Again, with with the omega-3s, we can run an omega-3 score, but uh, that I would only do in certain cases. The ones that I do like running though, as as kind of an overall look at health, are um, lipid panels hemoglobin A1C or, or, or uh, blood sugar, depending on, again, if you're if we're going into older age, especially. But the lipid panel, I think, is huge because more and more evidence is coming out demonstrating the effects of early life elevated LDL on cardiovascular disease risk. So if, you're, um, if you have elevated LDL early in life, we want to take care of that. And we want to take care of it pretty quickly. And for some patients, I actually, uh, we have this extensive list of tests called the healthy living panel which goes over your blood counts, your iron or ferritin, which is actually something I run in, in women fairly often because they're at higher risk of deficiency. It tests uh, base thyroid function, all your kidney and liver labs, your lipids, your, um, your blood sugar control. Uh, it, it, it's a pretty good overall look at general health, but that's just something that I'll do for patients that come in and really want to, to know um, where, they're, where they're at health-wise. But I wouldn't say I have standard tests that I do for everybody all the time because a lot of times if they aren't dealing with any kind of symptoms, um, if they're overall eating a very healthy diet and leading a healthy lifestyle and they're supplementing appropriately, I'm just not concerned. I, I don't know that it's necessary for them to spend the money on the tests because that is actually something I really think about with my patients is cost. I, I do have uh, quite a few patients who are not able to, to be you know dishing out hundreds of dollars uh, on tests sometimes. Not that all of them are, are that expensive, but I do want to be mindful of that. And so I don't like to run unnecessary tests unless they're really interested or if there's something we're, we're concerned about. Yeah. And particularly if you know that the dosage of that supplement has proven to be safe and effective, and therefore you're weighing up that risk versus reward. Exactly. Is that the same for say iodine if someone's listening and they've been consuming a plant exclusive diet for a while but they haven't necessarily focused on iodine would you recommend that they get a, a sort of urinary iodine test done or what would your advice be for that yeah so so my advice usually would be okay we need to include a regular iodine source um that would be the simplest thing just to make sure however and of course not going overboard on iodine intake which is hard to do unless you're using kelp anyway uh, but we want to make sure they're getting a consistent source of iodine. Now, if they decide that that maybe they don't want to be supplementing with iodine, they don't want to be including the iodized salt or the other food sources, then yes, I would say, okay, before, um, if you aren't sure about supplementing or, or about these other food sources, let's test, see where you're at. Because having that test, if it shows that they're on the low end, then they're probably more likely to, to get on board with that. But that's that's something that I would rarely see anybody pushing back on anyway. Okay. On the kelp, you mentioned that kelp is is often too rich in iodine, mm -hmm. right? Are you? We're talking here more about kelp in like a whole food form, right? I'm assuming that in a supplement form, if a brand is is providing kelp sup, uh, tablets or something, and it says 150 micrograms, that they are dosing that accordingly. 
I would hope so. But with supplements, and this is actually a really good note um, we should touch on. If you're getting supplements, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but I like to, to look at supplements that have either USP, NSF, or Consumer Labs um, stamps mm. on them. These are ones that have been third-party tested to actually have the dosages that they say they do, to have the ingredients that they say they do, and to not have contaminants. Because unfortunately, the supplement industry isn't super well regulated, so it is good to have that third-party testing. And um, that is something that we can definitely look out for. Yeah. In Australia, it's it's looking out for a supplement that is TGA listed. Yeah, it's a similar idea. Which is their Therapeutic Goods Administration, and then they're audited and the input amounts are checked. And you can also okay. request from brands. You can always email brands and ask for heavy metal testing or independent testing, as you say. And that's a that's a great thing to do to to verify that the company you're dealing with is a responsible one, and what it says on the label is actually what you're getting. Exactly. Yeah. I I think it's just super important because uh, a lot of the times when we look at papers uh, assessing supplements and and contaminants and that, they find quite a lot. Hey, you mentioned LDL there when you were talking about the lipid uh, panel. And you you mentioned there the the overwhelming amount of evidence that's building that has established LDL as an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. Now, if I was to play devil's advocate here and pretend for a second that I am a low-carb enthusiast, perhaps I'm Dr. Paul Saladino, uh, Okay, <laughs> I would argue against that and say that LDL is, is not always a problem, high LDL in and of itself. W- what do you think about the, the sort of segment of the nutrition world that denies LDL is an independent risk factor. I know you actually had a a discussion or a debate with with someone from the sort of carnivore crowd. I mean, it it must, to an extent, drive you a little bit mad and you you must get a little bit frustrated given that you're so across the evidence when you are faced with someone who's just completely denying LDL's involvement in the development of, of plaque atherosclerosis in the arteries. Yeah, it's, it's just crazy. So LDL, I mean, we have a publication from the European Atherosclerosis Society that goes over, what is it, 200 studies with uh, 2 million participants, 20 million person years of data suggesting that uh, increased LDL increases cardiovascular risk. We have uh, Mendelian randomization studies that look at genetically different levels, whether genetically very low or genetically very high levels, and they show that, again, LDL increases uh, risk. We have randomized controlled trials with different medications like statins, of course, PCSK9 inhibitors, uh, bile sequestrants. We have all of this evidence, and while they all may work by different mechanisms, they all have one thing in common that lowers LDL and it reduces the risk according to how much it lowers LDL. It is absurd. You would have to have a special level of skepticism to say that LDL doesn't cause cardiovascular disease. Now, speaking to the debate I had with the carnivore, and I mean, he was a, he was a nice guy and, and um, he was actually from Vancouver and we connected and, and he wanted to challenge me on this. In order to hold the belief that LDL doesn't cause cardiovascular disease, you need to have an absurd kind of uh, standard that you hold the evidence to, and you will not be consistent with that standard. And so what I mean was, I would show him all this evidence, and his whole claim would be, well, that isn't in the context of a carnivore diet. That was the phrase, not in the context of a carnivore diet. 
I actually went on to show him data of increasing meat intake and how risk uh, continuously goes up. And he would say, I mean, we don't have data up to 100%. So he would assume that at some point, the risk all of a sudden drops off and goes back down, right? It's just, it's a ridiculous kind of, of claim there. And to hold him consistent, what I did was I asked, okay, does smoking cause lung cancer? Because we don't have a randomized controlled trial on people smoking and, and uh, causing lung cancer. And he actually bit the bullet on that. He said, no, we can't say smoking causes lung cancer. So already that's a bit crazy, right? And then so I thought I'd push it a little further. I said, well, would jumping off a cliff at a thousand meters high kill you? And he kind of danced around the subject for a while. He, he wouldn't really answer it. And um, he's like, well, I mean, we have we have information on, you know, like uh, jumping and, and falling from heights and injuring. And, you know, I've done parkour and I've hurt myself. And I was like, but we don't have research in the context of thousand meter high cliffs. So if we don't have research in that context, can you say that jumping off a cliff from a thousand meters will kill you? And he after the longest, most deafening pause you've ever heard, he said, no, I guess we can't say that because it hasn't been studied. That is the absurdity, the, the absurdity of the level of like inconsistency or in order to be consistent, the sort of level of, of uh, uh, thing that he'd have to agree to, right? That is the type of logic we're talking about and the, the standards, the ridiculous standards that they're holding to. I mean, that's just one example, but I feel like you could probably get most of them in that sort of a scenario if you were to push them on it. Yeah, and I, I think that consensus panel statement from the, the European Atherosclerosis Society is one of the most comprehensive, best summaries that I've read of LDL's contribution to atherosclerosis. And you know, I believe that they actually say in that paper that all of that science, what you spoke to before, the genetic, the different levels yeah. of science, genetic epidemiology clinical trials unequivocally establishes that LDL causes, and they use the word causes, atherosclerosis. So essentially very similar to what you're saying with smoking there, that you do not necessarily have to have a single outcome from one clinical trial to be able to say causes when you have such enormous amount of data all pointing in the, in the same direction. Yeah. And it goes beyond just all this data pointing in the same direction. These interventions lower risk depending on how much they lower LDL. Yeah. Like that is the factor that matters. And so, yeah, it's just that uh, we can absolutely say causal and it is absolutely causal in that case. What do you think about the low carb storytelling ancestral references <laughs> that, that we should just eat like our ancestors, they ate a lot of meat. They they only ate plant foods, you know, in times of, of food scarcity. What do you think about that sort of narrative that is being fed from that group? Okay, so there's a couple problems. Um, for one, these people, our ancestors going back that far, didn't live all that long. Their goal was to survive to reproductive age, right? They just need to live long enough to reproduce. And you can do that on just about any diet. We weren't, we weren't talking about at that time living to be 80, 90, 100, 100. And like the, the oldest man this year, Freddie Blom died at 116 years old. We weren't talking about that, right? We were talking about, can I live to be 25, 30, 35? And so the goals are completely different. Now, I, I think there's also a misconception about how much animal or plant food played a role in their diets. It was very dependent on location. But the funniest one is when we talk about 
more recent hunter-gatherer populations. Like uh, I know in in that Joe Rogan episode the, on the carnivore diet, um, they bring up, uh, I think it was the Hadza. Yeah, the Hadza. Well, guess what? Yeah, if you look at their diets, they eat a lot of plant foods, a lot of carbohydrates, very little meat overall. And um, actually, if anything, I think it was more like milk and blood. And, and that um, is kind of, yeah, kind of gross to me. But anyways, um, they weren't even eating anywhere close to a carnivore diet. And so they're misrepresenting these these cohorts. There's the other, the Semaine or however you pronounce that. Chimane. Yeah, yeah. They ate a very low saturated fat diet. They're picking out these populations that ate some meat and hunted for some meat and then claiming that it supports an all meat diet, which is just absurd. Yeah, I think that's it's a lot of it is speculation as well. When it when it goes right back to when they talk about the discovery of fire and 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 what the Paleolithic diet would or or was or wasn't, and a lot of that is speculation. There is data on both sides of the fence, and you know it can be interesting to, to kind of entertain that. But I'm of the opinion that what would be much more helpful is looking at modern day data, be it modern day hunter gatherers and you know and the epidemiology observational type data that we have you just spoke mm-hmm. about then or clinical interventions and you know looking at the the various blue zones the okinawans and how people that are showing longevity today how are they eating exactly that's what we care about yeah but the chimane tribe is a very interesting one they're from i think it's bolivia right uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think it's Bolivia, and and as you say, they they get about seventy percent of their calories from from whole plants. Yeah, they're consuming very very little saturated fat. You know, what mm-hmm. of the little animal product they eat, it's mainly wild fish, and they have a very low incidence of of cardiovascular disease from what we know to date. Yeah, but the other thing that's funny about that paper that also needs to give us pause the, the I think it's the Lancet paper you're referring to they guessed their ages. They actually didn't know how old they were either. So it was all based on estimation. So they had to guess how old they were. So for all we know, they actually weren't living all that long too, right? It's all just based on looks. Yeah, I'm not, yeah, I haven't, I haven't read that. I've only, I've only really looked at their incidence of cardiovascular disease, not so much the, the, the longevity. I'm not sure that they actually live that long because they have a high burden of inflammatory, like infectious diseases. Oh yeah, I would imagine so, yeah. Yeah, being, being a sort of uh, modern day hunter, gatherer tribe. Awesome. We could, we could just keep talking, couldn't we? This <laughs> yeah. is, I feel like we probably fun. could. I mean, we've been uh, doing voice notes for so long. It's nice to have yeah. a conversation. Um, definitely need to, to make this a regular format. I hope that you've enjoyed it. Maybe just to, to, to round this one out to the listeners we've spoken about a lot. With regards to the, the, today, the evidence that we have today, if you were just asked to describe what are the characteristics of an evidence-based healthy diet, how would you answer that? I believe the evidence is, is very clear on the basis of a, of a healthy diet. And I know you spoke about this with David Katz as well in a previous episode. It's a diet that is made of predominantly whole plant foods um, centered on whole grains, fruits, vegetables, legumes, nuts, and seeds. Uh, it limits saturated fats, certainly limits red and processed meats. And then there, is, there can be a place within a healthy diet for things like low-fat dairy or fish. 
but that is where, in my opinion, ethics and environmental um, aspects come in. And we know from an environmental standpoint how damaging dairy is. Um, we also know what's happening with our oceans and, and how, um, in my opinion, we should probably leave the fish alone at this point. And then just ethically, I think what we do to these animals is, is asinine. I think, you know, we, if we can live uh, without unnecessary suffering, why wouldn't we? And ultimately, leaving them off our plate is the least we can do. Speaking out uh, above that, doing activism and that, that's the next step. But the least we can do is not contribute to the problem in the first place. Beautifully put. It's been a, a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me and big happy birthday for yesterday. Ah, thank you. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Like I said, I've been, I've been listening for a long time and I've definitely been a fan of your work and I'm looking forward to your book. So if you, if you want to ever send an advanced copy, I'm happy to take a look. <laughs> All right. Let's do this again soon. Sounds good. There we are, friends. Quite the information-packed episode. I hope you enjoyed it. To read through any of the studies that Matt and I spoke about, please do see the show notes where I have clearly separated the various topics by headings such as vegan diets and iodine, review on soy, etc. Also, as a side note, if you are wanting to view a full study, not just the abstract, that perhaps isn't free to the public, you can usually find them at SciHub and you can find a link to that website in the show notes. Also in the show notes, I've put a link to Matt's social media accounts. He's most active on Instagram. Now, before we leave, there is something I need you to do. Well, not need, but would like you to do. Head to plantproof.com forward slash book. That's plantproof.com forward slash book and register your email. This is the email list where I will be sending out information about my book and links to a lot of free information in the form of mini ebooks that will accompany the book. So if you are wanting to know more about nutrition science, whether that be to simply continue upgrading your health and your family's or to better your knowledge when helping people in your community, I strongly encourage you to sign up. It's completely free and these ebooks are jam-packed with evidence-based information that I've been compiling for years. Basically, a lot of the information that I simply could not fit into the book but wanted to. The idea being that when you read the book and then check out the ebooks, you will be completely armed with all the information you need to know how to eat in a way that's health promoting and easy on the planet. And at the same time, you won't be confused when you see the next crazy headline. Headlines that, let's face it, will always be there. So plantproof.com forward slash book, jump over there, enter your email, and I'll be in touch soon. That's all from me today. Thanks for hanging out all the way to the end. Peace and love. Let's meet back up here next episode. Don't stand me up.